0: Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com and today I am thrilled to be joined by Katrina Adams. Katrina is a former top 10 doubles player, a coach, a commentator and two-term president of the USTA. She's the first African-American, first former pro player and youngest person ever to serve in that role. She's also very patient since I just screwed up the recording so she's now heard me do this introduction twice. She's also the author of the new book, Own the Arena, Getting ahead, making a difference, and succeeding as the only one. Katrina, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad we could do this. And I want to dive right into one of one of your accomplishments as head of the USTA that uh, I guess meant the most to me was getting a statue up at the National Tennis Center of Althea Gibson. And this is a, a tennis hero who has not always gotten the credit she deserved either when she was playing, and, and certainly not now. And the statue certainly helped. There was a lot of attention and press around getting that up and in place at the National Tennis Center. And even with that, do you think that Althea now gets the, the credit that she deserves?
1: Well, I think it's, I think it's going in the right direction. Um, you know, Althea is a player that was a champion pre-Open era, pre-1968. And a lot of those champions from that era uh, did not get the recognition that they deserved um, as they were still playing as amateurs, and it just wasn't widespread. And and being of color, that made it even more difficult for her. I mean, she broke the color barrier for tennis here in America. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for her taking that leap of faith and going out there. Uh, you know, Arthur Ashe was our first African American male, but he also won in 1968 in the open era where there was a lot more eyes on him and television, etc. But for Althea Gibson, you know, getting that statue at the USCA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center was, was huge. It was a huge success because we have you know some eight hundred thousand people that walk through the grounds uh, of that event uh, every year, uh, pre pandemic and hopefully post. Um, and and I think you know her story continues to still have a need to be told.
0: And I'm I'm very curious about this. That I, I completely agree, and it's one of those things that seems obvious to me that people should know about figures like Althea Gibson. They're very inspirational. Um, but when it comes down to defining exactly why, I sometimes have a hard time. And you mentioned one, one coach who showed, who showed the, the kids he worked with videos about Althea Gibson as a way of inspiring them or showing them where they come from. Why do you think that's important? What, what, do, what do kids gain from knowing about figures who, I mean, in the case of Althea Gibson, won Grand Slams 60 years ago?
1: Well, you know, for me, obviously, I started playing in the 70s. So that's just 20 years after, uh, less than 20 years after, you know, she won uh, Wimbledon and U.S. Nationals back to back uh, for the second time. And, And so, you know, it was important for me to know, to learn about those players who came before me. Um, and whose shoulders that I've stood on to have the opportunity. So as we fast forward today, you know, everyone sees Venus and Serena as those leaders in the African-American community. And, you know, the further distance there is, um, you know, from years, the the less those players are actually talked about. And it's very important that we continue to talk about Althea Gibson and, and keep her in the forefront. Um, for the history of the sport, so the players understand who did what and why they have the opportunity to do what they do today.
0: Do you think there will be an opportunity to d- extend more honors to figures like Ora Washington and Jamie McDaniel, who who played very important roles before tennis was I mean, really even starting to get integrated? But I mean, you basically never hear those names. I mean, sports like baseball are doing taking great strides towards. Like Recognizing contributions of pre-integration era players, but like I say, you rarely hear those names in tennis. Do you think that's something that will change?
1: No, you're absolutely right. We're seeing more and more of it. And the New York Times just put a, an article out on Jimmy McDaniel's about a month ago. So as a forgotten champion, and and so there's a lot more light being shown on these um, amazing people not just players but the people to know what they endured to even just have the opportunity to play our sport and be competitive um you know the ata the american tennis association does a great job of of putting out stories on these individuals uh, year in and year out and and here in the u.s we're just coming off of black history month so a lot of those stories are told And they, they need to continue to be told.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the ATA since you mentioned in your book that you played ATA events early in your career. And and I realized at that point in, in the eighties, the ATA, it wasn't, it wasn't playing the same role as sort of the only outlet for African-American players, but it still played a very important role. And, you know, how did that figure in your early development as a player?
1: Well, yeah, it was a huge, it played a huge role in um, in my life. I, I played my first event at seven or eight years old in the ten and under. So I played every age group. Some years I played two age groups at the same time. Um, and then my last ATA um, event I think was 1986 when it was in Chicago. And 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 up until probably. 90 in the early 90s the winner of the ATA men's and women's championships of the ATA got a wild card into the qualifying rounds of the US Open so it was a big event a very important event in our development um, that provided an opportunity to get to a platform that wasn't otherwise attainable and so you know my my roots come from there I have great friends lifelong friends that you know, that I met at 10 years of age that I'm still um, in connection with. But as the game kind of integrated more and more, you know, players of color were playing more USTA national events um, and and being able to go down that developmental pathway to where we started to play fewer ATA events, um, if not none, because they conflicted they conflict it with our USCA national tournaments, but right now it's back on the rise. The ATA is back at the forefront. They're really putting a lot of historical information out there, so that people understand the importance and, and the important role that they've had in the development of tennis here in America.
0: You, you tell one. I guess it's, it's slightly funny and a little bit sad story in in your book about a a kid that you worked with in the Harlem junior tennis and education program that he was teased that tennis is not a black sport. And you, you mentioned that we have great role models now like Serena and Venus Williams. And of course, more younger players now are, do you think kids are still hearing that, that tennis is not a black sport?
1: I don't think as much, I don't think so as much now as probably, you know, 15, 20 years ago because, you know, every time I turn on the television, I see Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, you know, Serena, Venus, Simone, Madison, you know, there are a number of, of players that are out there. Uh, of course, on the men's side, we, we are leaning on Francis Tiafo, Michael Moe, Chris Chris Eubanks, um, you know, to kind of lead the pack there. But it's tennis is a lot more accessible now than it was you know, 20 years ago, that in every community, there's some kind of local program or in the, in the public park, but uh, it's not a matter of getting the kids in the sport, it's keeping them in the sport where they're being lured by the other sports and the other great sports figures, you know, LeBron, Katie, Russell Wilson, um, Mahomes, you know, these, these cats have a commercial, every other commercial, and the kids' eyes gravitate to that, and then inspire or aspire to be um, them as opposed to if we had regular commercials of people of color in tennis
0: so how do how do you combat that like if if you've got a talented ten year old out there who's deciding between tennis and basketball and you really want to keep them in a tennis program if they're not seeing Francis Tiafo or someone like that on, on TV all the time, how do you keep them engaged with tennis?
1: Well, I mean, the, the, first, the first part is making sure when they're introduced to the sport that they're having fun um, and, and they're having fun developing. The second part is making sure that the parents understand the benefits of tennis, not just in development as a player, but the opportunities and the life skills that they're learning that will take them um, a very long way. You know, in in football and basketball and baseball, it's it's a draft system and, you know, the percentages are low, um, you know, to even have those opportunities. So that's what we do in, in my program, the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. We work with a lot of inner city kids and we use tennis, education and wellness, um, you know, to develop them as complete individuals, not just complete tennis players. And those are the messages that we we use for the healthy benefits of the sport. You know, you're not banging heads out there and with uh, a chance of likely getting a concussion. But this is a sport for a lifetime.
0: And it really struck me. I think you mentioned that it, that it was your influence that put the word education literally in the title of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. And it struck me that a lot of the examples you gave of success stories were kids who went on to be successful in other fields, not necessarily tennis players, but maybe collegiate players who are now in med school or something like that. And do you think that tennis is particularly well suited to playing that role compared to other sports or other other activities that, that kids might get involved with in junior high or high school?
1: Yeah, you know, the life skill that you're learning in tennis, you know, it's, it's it's ultimately an individual sport. So you've got to be able to be tactical, to be strategic, to be self-motivated, to have the discipline, you know, to want to go to practice every day or do the training, whatever that is. And and not every player is going to be a national tennis player or or a highly competitive tennis player, but they can enjoy the sport and love the challenges that it provides them. Well, those are all the life skills that we need to be successful in in school, right? We got to be self-motivated to do our studies, to, you know, to go to class. Uh, We got to have the discipline to do that. And as you move further along, you know, getting into college, these are things or characteristics that, you know, the higher education institutions are looking for in individuals. So if they see that you on your CV that you've been in a youth program for, seven, eight, nine, 10 years, they're saying, wow, this this young man or young lady is dedicated. They have a lot of discipline. They understand time management. This is the type of student that we want here. Um, And it goes beyond that into the professional world, even more so um, knowing that you have a tennis player that understands hard work, understands losing and winning.
0: And speaking of of tennis in college, like, I, I know you went to Northwestern, you were very successful as a collegiate tennis player. And th- this is a debate that's, I mean, it, it's been going on for you know, certainly as long as I've been following tennis that it, a lot of young players don't go to college, they end up struggling in futures or challengers events for a long time. And especially with the tour getting older, do you think that more more aspiring tennis pros should go to college and, and take that route?
1: Well, I think we've seen the trend change in the last decade. a lot A lot more kids are going to college going that route. Um, you're, still all, you're always going to have the few phenoms that are, are just that good and can go out and be successful, you know the tiafos, the Taylor Fritz. Tommy Pauls, you know, Coco Goffs of the world. Uh, They're just that talented. But the majority of them do go to college and play and have an unbelievable experience, college experience, but also continue to develop as players um, and then ultimately come out. I mean, you look at someone like John Isner, I think he's the last, uh, either John or Stevie Johnson are the last players to have gone to college for four years and have had a successful career on the men's side. Danielle Collins, I believe, is the last or the most recent female to do so. So there is an opportunity to still, you know, be a professional tennis player after completing your
0: degree. Do you think there's anything the sport could do? Um, Like, I I guess, anytime you're talking about the sport of tennis in general, you're talking about such a patchwork of organizations. But the ITF or the USDA could do to make it easier for players to transition from from college programs to the pros or basically just make it a little easier for for good aspiring professionals to do both?
1: Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of opportunities for them to do both. I mean, there's a tournament almost every week somewhere where if you're in college, you know, if during spring break, you can go and play a challenger or a pro circuit event. Um, you know, and in the summertime, obviously there, there's definitely a tournament every week when the players, the student athletes are not in class. So the opportunities are there. This is just a sport that you you know, truly your results determine how far you can go. And, and it's up to the players to know when it's time to call it quits. I mean, if you're playing still on the pro circuit entry-level events five years in, you know, chances are you're probably not going to get off of that tier of, of tournaments or challengers even. Um, I mean, I, I made the decision to turn pro when I knew I was in the main draw of a grand slam. I didn't want to play on the pro circuit, you know, for where I really had to rely on my results and knowing that, I had to live by the the little money that's out there in that entry level. So it's up to the players to really be able to make those decisions. But the opportunities are definitely there for them to make the transition from college to the pro level.
0: And it, it struck me—you mentioned that in the book as well—that you, you made the transition to the pros when you had gotten into a Grand Slam main draw, and that's something that I don't think a lot of players these days can say. It seems like the players who are making the switch—they're—they're they're doing it more on sort of a, a wing and a prayer. They're certainly not ranked in the top 100 when they they leave college in most cases, and often there are players who will—they'll be stuck at the Challenger or future level for for years, as you say. I mean, do you think players are are too likely these days to I mean, to just stick it out at the low levels in tennis even when the signs all say that they should probably be looking at a second career
1: well you always say there's always next week right and and any any competitor feels that they can improve and has a chance of winning now you know I didn't turn pro until my ranking was up but I spent two years playing if not three Playing the pro circuits and the challengers, but as an amateur, I played every summer after college. I played, you know, maybe a Christmas break, I'd play a tournament or, you know, another school break, I would play another tournament. So I was constantly collecting points. And it was at that point, you know, when I reached uh, that certain ranking that I actually turned pro, but I, I played as an amateur, which is basically you're allowed to um earn your expenses uh, but nothing more than what your expenses were and the money wasn't great anyways but at least i could you know make a thousand dollars here 800 dollars there whatever it was that paid for my travel and hotel for that particular week
0: one thing you mentioned in the book that gave a really interesting window for me into into tour life for you was the presence of of these women like like bunny williams who were umpires or or supervisors who were around and got to know you and served as kind of den mothers since in 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 your generation as now so many of the up-and-coming women are are very young when they're heading out into the world largely on their own do you think those do people exist now who are serving the same role for the 17 18 19 year old women who are striking out on the pro tour
1: That's a very good question. I'm not out there to uh, see and experience what's going on. But, you know, I would say when I was coming up, I didn't, I didn't have the entourage that many of these kids now have, you know, where their parent or somebody is with them every single week, so they didn't need someone else. Um, You know, I was 19, I did have a coach, but I I still had my own time that I spent away from my coach and and where these relationships or my respect for these people was what it was. You know, it's all about the individual and you got to respect that. You have to respect the the people that are out there helping you and understand uh, when they are, are trying to help you. And I think the attitude for a lot of kids today is that, they don't know how to receive assistance because they always think that someone's after them. And, and that's the difference.
0: Yeah. And then that's, that's actually the next thing I was going to ask you since you not directly, but you've been on on the other side of this equation now running the U S open and seeing how players interact with the people who are, working within the USTA with you and do you think the attitude of of players have have changed about like how they approach the tournaments and their responsibilities and and what they what they think they're owed by the world I guess for lack of a better way of saying it
1: yeah I mean listen this is we live in a society it's not just in tennis but we live in a society where you think that you know they're owed everything (laughs) and and so Uh, the attitudes are definitely different. Particularly if you come out and you won some matches or you're highly ranked and you've got your agent and your coach and your physio and everyone else with you that you don't have a voice. You don't even speak for yourself or not allowed to think for yourself. So therefore their development and and communication skills is not as great as if, you know, you're out there by yourself and having to figure things out. And I, I went through that even though I traveled with other, you know, like USCA teams as a junior, I still had, I still was on my own, and I still had to figure out how to do stuff and and relate to my coach or relate to my peers. So I would say that there's a percentage of players that definitely have that attitude, but there are also a lot, a percentage of players who are grateful for the opportunity and are able to articulate that and how they present themselves and and. And communicate with others.
0: Yeah, and it, it it sounds like you really took some benefits from being. You weren't exactly thrown to the wolves, but you, you did have to figure out a lot of stuff for yourself. And it seems like that has benefited you down the line. And if we're looking for like a a, a tennis executive pipeline among today's players, those are the sorts of players you'd be looking at, right? You, would, I mean, it, it, do you think it's it, it's a problem at all that players are so are so protected or sheltered that then their relationship to the sport will be different when they leave it or they leave the the professional ranks.
1: You know, I can honestly speak from my own experience. So I, you know, and I, and I'm grateful for the experience that I have, but I mean, I, I guess I have witnessed other, other players who were a little more reserved a little more sheltered who just never really adapted to the real world, if you will. Um, and and have not been able to find that next chapter in their life, or if they did, it was you know 10, 15 years after they finished their careers, um, just because they were so quote unquote protected. And and so I'm I'm hoping that this generation and the next generation, you know, you learn from each generation, and and I'm hoping that the next generation is learning from our current generation. If I, if I look at our, you know, I look at Venus and Serena, who obviously were some of the, the greatest players in our sport, they also have businesses. They, you know, they were diverse in their approach from not just being tennis players, but being business women and have, and have set an example for the next generation of players. So that's what I'm hoping that this generation is learning that, hey, yeah, I need, to, I need to get my education while I'm out here playing. Um, the WTA Tour, I know, has an online collegiate program for players. I think Sloane Stevens got her degree through that um, mechanism. I think, I want to say Venus has got her master's, perhaps, from that process. But it's, uh, the opportunities are there, and you just have to learn from those that come before you.
0: Yeah, certainly Serena and, Vili- and Venus are tremendous examples of that. And Naomi Osaka seems to be headed in that direction as well. And it, since you mentioned it, Iga Sviantek just said something in the last week or two about how she, she she doesn't want to be one of those people who finishes her career and doesn't know what to do with herself. And since it seems like at least some players are more aware of that now, that, that that's something they'll have to deal with down the road. If, if someone like Naomi or, or Iga comes to you and says, what should I be doing now so that 10 years from now, my transition to a non-playing professional career is easier, what would you tell them?
1: Uh, first of all, it's about networking, asking questions, asking questions with people in a lot of different in, in, industries to find out what your interest is. Uh, if you already know what your interest is, make sure you immerse yourself uh, in conversation with people in that field so that you can learn and 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 do the research and and prepare yourself for that. You know, it's a lot different now with Google. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these kids can. You can learn anything in a nanosecond. Whereas, you know, I grew up with an encyclopedia, so I couldn't really travel the world with encyclopedias, right? So I think the opportunities for this generation are far greater to be successful following their tennis career in other industries because there are more industries, first of all, that are available and accessible um, that these players, you know, can find themselves in. And so for an Eva Spatek, you know, as disciplined as she is on the court, imagine how she would be, you know, working and learning and training um, for a professional career, whatever that pathway would be for her.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, a few things about the USTA I wanted to talk to you about. There were just a couple, a couple of, of tidbits about the organization in the book that really, surprised me. One was that you mentioned it's the world's largest sport governing body. I hope I remember that right. Um, and you don't really think about that because you think of tennis as not the number one sport in the world, although it's close. Um, but having the U.S. Open means it's a, it's a really substantial organization. And what, what lessons do you think the USTA has for other organizations, whether they're tennis federations in other countries that aren't as substantial or other sporting federations in the U S that don't have something like the U S open to hang their hat on. Like what would you tell them if they came to you for advice on how to, how to spread their sport or or improve their sport?
1: Well, I think the first thing is, is understanding how they're structured and and what their end goal is. Um, And based on their end goal, you know, they, they have to have their strategic plan in place to be able to, you know, have the vision in place to succeed, and you and you have to scale it. I mean, we're very fortunate to own the U.S. Open to serve our mission, um, as well as the other three Grand Slam nations. So, all of the other nations don't have the Grand Slam event to do that, but many of the nations do have large tennis events, and so it's a matter of who owns those events. Is the is the national association getting any? funding from those events that may have independent owners so that they can use some of those funds to go into the development of their sport. But it's really about scaling and understanding what opportunities are out there and getting people behind it and getting the players on the court. Because if you can grow the baseline of your players as participants, then you have a much better chance of being successful as a nation. So you look at You look at nations like Spain or France or or the Netherlands, these are small nations, but they have produced some amazing champions and without having, well, France has a Grand Slam, but the others without having a a Grand Slam event, a major event. And so it's really about having your goals in place and understanding um, the structure that you have to help you succeed.
0: So I'm glad you mentioned the Dutch you mentioned a couple of times that you you have good friends from the Netherlands and you've always felt comfortable around Dutch people what do you think is different or what do you think is special about the Dutch
1: um I don't know I mean you know they're they're pretty direct people they're no nonsense people um, and and they have a great sense of humor at least all of the friends that that I have there um, you know I remember maybe in the early days talking to some of the play and they talking to some of the players about race or color. And it's just, we, you know, we have a lot of black people in Holland. We don't think about, we don't see that as being, you know, different. And, and so they embraced me as a black person uh, very easily and treated me, you know, as, as one of their own, if you will. And, and so I gra, I just gravitated to their personality, I think more so. And, and just their black and white approach, no pun intended, to um, to conversation. So,
0: Well, I had I, I had to ask. I know I have a good contingent of Dutch listeners to the show. So, so when, when that came up in your book a couple of times, I, I had to dig a little deeper on that.
1: Yeah, um, no, I'm happy.
0: Uh, you mentioned that the USDA has this advantage of having the U.S. Open. A few other countries have that and other countries have big tournaments as well. And I'm wondering, obviously, the USTA focuses a lot on building at the grassroots level, um, especially in, in underserved communities and, and trying, to, trying to spread tennis as widely as possible. Do you think that the USTA has a role outside the US to the, the countries that I mean, have no advantages? Like You mentioned traveling in Bhutan and Cambodia and, and finding some very bare bones tennis initiatives there. Like, Does the USTA have a place to, to grow the game outside of the country?
1: Well, the, the USCA contributes to the Grand Slam Development Fund, which uh, is administered by the ITF. So therefore, uh, you know, some of their funding is going towards these players in these obscure locations. Um, so they, there is uh, a collaboration of, of sorts from the four majors, the US Open, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, and Australian Open. To try to help some of these developing nations uh, develop their players, so I think a lot of a lot of countries look to the USCA for leadership, for collaboration, for partnership in a lot of different areas, uh, even if it's just to get advice in some in some form or fashion.
0: Yeah, it it, it struck me your stories about Bhutan and Cambodia, just how basic some of their needs were. Like you turn up in Bhutan and find out that they would really, really like to have a stringing machine, which is, I mean, such, such a basic thing for, for some people that you forget that that could be a a pressing need for others. And do you think that the grand slam nations or the ITF, um, do you think that they're responsive to what those, what those countries need that they're, they're kind of meeting them at their own level?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, that's the role of the ITF. They're the governing body of tenants worldwide. And, and these nations are member nations of the ITF, uh, as is Bhutan. So, you know, even when I walked into their office, they had the rackets that were in there were ITF uh, administered um, product that was there. And so in, in, you know, yes, they had a string of machine, but it was antiquated. Um, but to get them a stringing machine that they could string a racket and, you know, in, in a nanosecond compared to the device that they had, you know, it was my, it was my role as the ITF president then to say, okay, how can I help them? So I was, I, my, my um, participation was really wearing an ITF hat versus the USCA hat, although they recognized me as USCA, but you know, I did, what, I did what I needed to do. I'm on the ITF board because I'm a USDA representative. So it's all the same for me, whether it's ITF or USCA in assisting these particular, these particular uh, countries in need of certain
0: services. You must have a lot of luggage when you travel, because that sounds like a lot of hats you're carrying with you.
1: <laughs> I actually do have a lot of luggage when I carry. And that's only because I, I, like, to, I, I like to be fashionable, that's all.
0: Okay, well, before we started recording, we were talking about your glasses and one pair as fashionable as they are is definitely not enough. Um, so this is getting a little bit more in the weeds, but I didn't realize before reading your book that the the USTA president serves a two-year term and and you ended up serving back to back terms, but that's historically not precedented. So it's very unusual for someone to have as much time at the leading organization as you did. And you pushed to extend that a little bit to a, to a standard three-year term and it, it seems like given the scope of the sort of things the USDA is like trying to accomplish, like expanding the National Tennis Center and the, the Lake Nona development in Florida, like these are big, big projects. And I mean, it, to me, it seems kind of obvious that, that the leader should be in place for a longer period of time. I mean, it, it, does that, do you think that holds back the organization that the person at the top is changing so often?
1: I think it does a little bit. I mean, we, we have grown, you know, leaps and bounds from when we were founded as a volunteer organization and, you know, and, and, and how our business has grown and, and what we manage and what we own. And, and so, you know, even before I got in there, having no idea that I would be serving uh, an additional term, you know, I was, I felt with my experience going around the world and being with other nations or other larger nations that at least three years, because it takes a full year really for you to to kind of get your feet wet and, and get things going. And by the time you get things going, you're on your way out. And for the business, you also had your executives and your staff that had to change their direction literally every two years because the next president came in with a different vision and so to try to have consistency um and 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 to remain successful along the way i felt that it was important to uh to do that as well as many other people but it didn't pass and it's not the first it wasn't the first attempt to get the bylaws changed and it probably won't be the last attempt and um I think they'll figure it out. For me, having had four years, I, I felt that that was plenty of time, you know, to have made my mark and and to be able to pass it along to the next person. But um, you know, until the next president is in there for more than two years, we won't really know how effective uh, that that time frame can be.
0: So I'm I'm curious what kind of role the USTA can have addressing social issues like we've seen other sports take on Black Lives Matter over the last year or two, and the USTA did a lot, um, and the USTA has a relationship with other tournaments. I mean, oh, and certain other tournaments in the U.S. So it isn't just the U.S. Open, but it seems like tennis it it kind of starts with with one one arm tied behind its back because the sport is so fractured then because it's so international that issues that are big in the U S might not be big in the countries where other slams are held Um, certain players from certain parts of the world might not be thinking about them, them as much. How, how do you think about tennis taking on issues like, like race or police brutality when, when you're just kind of one corner of the sport?
1: Yeah, we are, a, um, we, are, we are a fraction of the sport holistically because we are a global sport. Um, when you look at tennis in America, I mean, we are a national governing body of, of tennis in the sport for the USOPC. So there are certain limitations. We are a nonprofit organization. There are certain limitations as to what we can and should be doing on the political front. Um, we are very keen in having diversity, equity, and inclusion in our sport, not just as participants playing, but, you know, our volunteers as well as our staff, and that's something that they will continue to work on um, to diversify over time. And you have to be careful, though, with, with some of the things that you support, because, our whole goal is to make sure that we're supporting these issues day in and day out in every community. And so when you talk about Black Lives Matter uh, over the summer, does the USDA support that? Absolutely. And and, and they have in many ways, Um, but it's more about what can we do in these communities to show that we support you with the programs and the opportunities that we have, um, as opposed to just putting statements out there to say one thing, and then you don't see the change in other areas. Um, they just hired a new uh, chief diversity and inclusion officer earlier this year. She started in January, Marissa Grimes, and and so hopefully she has her own um, strategic vision in place as to how she's going to approach the industry as, uh, um the industry itself. But from a professional standpoint, you know our players are independent contractors, very different than the leagues. You know so. Basket NBA, you, you play for your team, you play for your owner and you have obligations to your team or your league for tennis players. They only have an obligation to themselves.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a different structure that it's sometimes easy to forget how, how different some of the decisions at the, 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 the the sport or the individual level are. Um, Okay, so I, I, I promise to keep this relatively short. So I only have a couple more questions for you. But I think all uh, all of your accomplishments as an executive have cast a bit of a shadow over your playing career, which is is pretty notable, I'd say top 10 doubles player. Um, if, if you were to go back in time and, and give a scouting report on Katrina Adams, the player at your peak, what would you tell someone?
1: Oh, man, I was a mean, mean machine. Now. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I was an aggressive player. I I, I was a serving volleyer. I, I was not patient at all. Uh, I had no patience. I still don't have patience. But, you know, I, I was crafty. I was athletic. Um, I had fun. And, and I, I loved the sport. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I excelled better in doubles because I did have the partner and someone I could high five with and laugh with and you know etc and express myself um but I think it's you know my game style is uh it's very similar to who I am with my personality today as a go-getter someone that forges forward um doesn't hang back and um you know, I'm not the patient one. So, you know, I may make some mistakes going going head first, but it's OK. I learn from them. And, and I, but I keep forging.
0: It's one thing I love watching serving volleyers is that you have to have that kind of attitude, right? You, you, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to get past just gonna have to deal with that. And you can still win 53 you percent know, of the points. That's all you really need. Um, uh, I know you played a lot of great players, Chris Everett, Steffi Graf, and you played Serena when your careers overlapped. Um is is there a player you think of when you think of a someone you faced who's underrated that we don't talk about like those all-time greats?
1: Uh I mean Laurie McNeil was one of those players who was unbelievably talented. She had all the shots, she had the quickness, she had the endurance. Um, you know, she had a couple big wins here and there, but just wasn't consistent with them. Um, she was, she was top 10 at, at some point in her career. Uh, I know when I started, she was top 10. I don't remember how long she stayed there, but she was definitely a player that really played with, with style and grace, um, that a lot of people don't even know who she is today.
0: Yeah, I actually was thinking of asking you specifically about her because I, I've uh, I've ended up learning a lot about her watching old matches on YouTube since she she did play Steffi Graf a few times and there are some pretty serious Steffi Graf video archivers out there, but but yeah, I mean she she was right up there with Zena for much of her career, but Zena had a slightly higher peak. She was on national TV more. Like I, I knew about Zena Garrison as a kid, but I did not know about Laurie McNeil. So it's been really interesting to learn more about her career. So, my last question is um, when you wanted to break into commentating ESPN wasn't interested because you weren't a slam champion they weren't interested in in players without that sort of resume and and you felt that lower ranked players players who weren't slam champions have something to offer in the broadcast booth that goes beyond what slam champions have to say and I, i'm I'm curious what you think that is what what do you bring to the broadcast booth that a uh, a Grand Slam champion wouldn't necessarily.
1: Well, we, we understand the mentality of the of the mid rank players and those that are aspiring to get to the top, right? So a lot of our champions, um, you know, they're all great. They're all great commentators and they bring a lot to the table. But a, a lot of times, you know, let's just say if you go back 15, 15 years before Tennis Channel when tennis was on twenty four seven. You only saw tennis on the weekends, So you only saw the best players playing week in and week out, right? So they could relate to the top 10 players that were in the semis and the finals. But when you have the newcomers out there, and everybody's a newcomer, not everybody starts off being, you know, number one in the world, of course. Um, But when you have the newcomers that are just fighting and scrambling and in the middle, You have a diverse thought or opinion as to the the style of play from that player, what's needed, what is it they need to focus on a little bit more because I was once that player and and felt that I should have done X or Y. And I just always feel that in anything that we're doing that you have to have diversity of thought and, and the delivery of something because there's someone out there that relates to you a little bit better than the next person.
0: That's very well put. I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have put it in words as well as you did, but I, I definitely feel the same way about hearing different opinions in the commentary box. And um, one of the great messages of your book is getting a diversity of opinions everywhere, not just in the commentary box. So Katrina, thank you so much for your insight and for joining me on the show today.
1: Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it.
0: Absolutely. And likewise, I enjoyed your book very much. Um, It is called Only Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference, and Succeeding as the Only One. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I'm Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and I will see you next time.